0: Hello friends and welcome to the U-Turn podcast. This is your host Ashley Stahl. I'm a career expert, a speaker, a best-selling author of the book U-Turn. Get unstuck, discover your direction, design your dream career. And I created the U-Turn book and the podcast as a place to help you connect to who you truly are at your core. And that's why every single week I want to bring a guest on with the intention of helping you expand what's possible for you, both in your confidence, whether it's in work or love, and just in life in general. So let's get into this week's episode. Okay, friends, it's Ash here. And, you know, we talk about love, we talk about relationships, but there is an elephant in the room, and it's addiction. I cannot tell you how many flings I've ended in New York City because I'm noticing the person leans on alcohol to numb themselves, smokes weed a few times too many every night to not feel their day. And I'm all for using the tools that you have in your life to soothe and feel better. But when you're avoiding your life, when you're hiding from your life, when you're holding on to trauma, it can hold you back so much. And that's why I wanted to bring one of my absolute favorite guests back onto the show. My friends, in times of high stress, busy workdays, and pandemics, it's so important that you make sure you're taking care of yourself by taking a multivitamin. We are living in one of the most toxic times, whether it's the water we drink, the air we breathe, or even the pesticides on the plants that we eat. And it's so important to fuel your body with supplements that it's not necessarily getting at your local Italian restaurant. This is why I wanted to take a moment to share the Complete Essentials Daily Pack of Vitamins, plus Recharge NAD supplements with you. The Essential Daily Pack is filled with your dose of vitamins A, C, D, E, and K. It also contains biotin, which is great for your skin, your hair, your nails, calcium for your bones, zinc for your health, manganese, potassium, and an essential blend that you can get for either women's or men's health. These essential daily vitamins even come with omega-3s, which can help your body better absorb vitamins and micronutrients, making sure your cells get more of the good stuff. I also added on to the complete essential vitamin pack, NAD, every single day. NAD is such a powerful new supplement, and I want to share with you how it's been changing my life. So, a little lesson on physiology. Our body has our mitochondria, and they're powered generators for our cells and the thing about NAD is when you take the supplement it's fueling your cells with generating energy for your cells there's also waste and so as your cells are working they're creating waste which is really garbage that gets generated in your body and when this waste is not taken out of the body your body's ability to generate and regenerate slows down which creates a problem called senescence which creates aging NAD recharge gives our body more garbage trucks by helping our mitochondria and it helps you get the junk out of your body and slows down your aging process. You will notice within a few weeks of taking NAD that you have a huge energy spike. I was able to stop even taking that second cup of coffee in the afternoon because NAD was such a game changer for me. So taking the essential vitamin pack has become an absolute staple along with the NAD. And you know, let's face it, our favorite foods aren't exactly always nutrient dense. I try my best to eat well and take care of my body, but these daily essentials have been a huge deal. And I love they put all the necessary Necessary vitamins in one sachet so you can say hasta la vista to your big medicine cabinet filled with vitamin bottles and now in one single place you can open your multivitamin pack in the morning and at night and make sure you're taking care of your body and you can add the NAD supplement on if you're looking to increase your energy improve your memory lower your blood pressure and lower your cholesterol visit ashleystallcom slash vitamins to place your order now for the women's pack or visit ashleystallcom slash vitamins men for the- the male version again that's ashleystall.com slash vitamins for the women's multi-pack or ashleystahl.com slash vitamins men for the men's multi-pack now let's get back to this week's episode anna gabriel or gabriel man she has her masters um and she earned her degree in clinical psychology before she went on to serve as an educator a therapist corporate trainer speaker coach um and she currently coaches Go Giver Marriage clients and leads the Go Giver Marriage Coaches training program. Uh, I had her and her husband on, so I'm sure you listened to that episode. And I just love everything she had to say so much that I wanted to get into this more difficult topic. So, Anna, thank you so much for being back here with me. Absolutely, I'm psyched. Yeah, you're such a treat. You're so life giving, and I'm I'm curious, kind of, what gives you this interest or this understanding of addiction in relationships? Because I know you've worked with people across the board, and I'm guessing that this is way more common than a lot of us realize.
1: It's way more common. I have my own history with with having been with somebody who came from an alcoholic family, and they weren't actually addicted themselves, but they had their own brand of addictions. Mm -hmm. And if you read any of Terry Reel's work, Mm -hmm. his latest book, Us, Mm -hmm. is an absolutely incredible book. But one of my favorite books of his is I Don't Want to Talk About It, Mm. which is about men in depression and how they cope with depression. Mm. And most of them cope with their mild to moderate depression by first um, disavowing it. So it's covert depression. They Mm. don't acknowledge that they're depressed. They're cranky. They're irritable. They feel not good enough about themselves. But what they do is they self, either self-medicate with an actual substance, or they self-medicate by working out too much at the gym and being obsessive about their body, having a computer addiction, having a porn addiction, and having any number of ways that they avoid intimacy through self-medicating. Mm. And so I was in a relationship for a number of years with that person, and I really didn't see it. I was a therapist. Mm. But he was a real workaholic. I mean, he was just always unavailable. And I think that when you have a relationship where distancing is part of the process, mm. you ideally should be looking at that a little bit and saying, why are we not spending that much time together? Why are we always having this distance
0: you know, it's interesting because I know that there's like certain things that people who have an addiction tend to say in defense of their addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, So I dated an amazing guy, such a great guy. He was so chivalrous, generous, funny, successful, and he was so exhausted at the end of the day, he would have a joint. I think I mentioned this guy to you all sorts of times, but he, um, you know, at first he said he smokes weed to, to sleep at night. And I kind of understood some people have sleep issues. And I guess this is maybe more holistic, but is it because the smoke is in your lungs all the I don't know. So I was light about it. And as the three months went on of dating him, I noticed it wasn't once. It was when he got home after the TV show we were watching and right before bed. So it was three joints a night with cigarette, with nicotine in them. And when I asked him about it, he was really defensive. I said, hey, I know you thought about quitting. Like, are you going to quit? He's like, well, I could quit any time. He said that was something he said. So, I want to just work with you now to kind of name what are some of those statements that are actually indicative that this could be an addiction. What are some um, signs in general that someone listening right now can say, "Oh, my partner or I have something we need to look at for ourselves."
1: Well, the first one is exactly what you just said. I can quit at any time, and I'll tell you the classic person that I've experienced both friends, family, and clients that have that very line connected to a single glass or glass and a half of wine every night. Uh. And they don't see it as an addiction. They don't see it as a problem. It's just, I'm just relaxing. I'm unwinding. You know, I've had a long day. It's perfectly permissible. Our society really endorses, especially if it's a nice Pinot Noir or, you know, it's a nice bottle of wine. You know, we're not talking jug wine here. Um, So people really will almost put a different kind of status on it because it's status acceptable to be a red wine aficionado
2: Mm. Um,
1: or a nice white wine for, you know, it really, it doesn't matter. Mm. But I've known men and women who will say, well, I can quit at any time. And my classic question for any of my clients or friends is, okay, starting tomorrow, 60 days, nothing. Yeah. And they I all go oh <laughs> you know you can see them bluster immediately right the idea of going 60 days without
0: exactly you know I did that to him when because things were getting more serious it was going so well and I said hey look you can smoke at your own pace and quit at your own pace but i don't see myself living with someone and having kids when they're inhaling smoke or I'm, me being pregnant with this are you really intending to quit and then he said that i can quit anytime and i said Okay, great. Well, then, can you quit? And he, oh, well, I need a couple of days to think about that. So there's that pushback, um, and I and I say this from non judgment because my big sister was an addict and it killed her. So I I understand the pain or even the the joy of like that glass of wine. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about what are some other little sound bites? Like I could quit any time, and then they kind of back up when you say, "Okay, let's do that." Um, What are some other things people can notice?
1: Um, I think that the backing up is the other thing that people notice is that um, alcohol, pot, you know, any of the substances that you can do that have a quieting down, even a Xanax. You know, I know people who are like, well, I only take a Xanax, you know, a couple times a week. Um, But a Xanax puts you in a zone and it's not a zone of relationship. Hmm. Um, A glass of wine puts you in a zone. You may feel more relaxed and more comfortable. You might even feel less inhibited, but Mm -hmm. you're actually more inhibited. You are less connected emotionally. You're less in touch with your feelings. You are, in effect, numbing yourself. And Mm -hmm. when you're numbing yourself, you're never in the relationship in the way that you might imagine you are. Nobody wants to hear that because the number one thing that all addicts have in common is denial. Mm -hmm. I mean, denial... Is not just a river in Egypt. Denial is like a big, big deal. Um, And people use it in all places in their life. You know, denial can really be a helpful defense at times, but it's also really destructive to your life and to your relationships.
0: Mm, Okay. And I know that in addition to alcohol and Xanax or weed or even, you know, where do you draw the line? Like I used to be pretty addicted to sugar. Like everybody has something. I have a cup of coffee in front of me. It's my second one today. Where do you give yourself grace? Like if somebody says to me, Hey, quit drinking, I would push back, but I wouldn't. So I'd be like, I could. And I actually mean it. Like I, I probably drink once a week, you know, maybe once every couple weeks, but I would fight back on it. Cause I have fun for my girls nights. You know, I right. love to have my two cocktails and dance the night away with them. So what is going on inside of someone that makes us say, okay, this isn't just a fun thing they do that they're pushing back on. This is an addiction.
1: Well, the first thing you just defined is the difference between somebody who's got an addiction and someone who doesn't, Okay, you know, somebody who has a drink or or a couple of cocktails, um, you know, every two weeks when they go out on girls night and they dance and they're having fun, um, and they're cutting loose with their friends in that moment. Um, they don't have an addiction; they're just out having a good time. Yeah. Um, addiction really is when you've got to have it every day. Mm. Um, and and it's just that people will minimize the amount. Um, you know, there's a show on Netflix called "The Woman Across the Street from the Woman in the Window," and it 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 uh, it has a great great scenes where she has a giant one of those really big wine glasses and she's filling it all the way to the top and all the way to the top is more than half a bottle of wine. You know, it's, it's a massive glass. Mm. And so that's how she convinces herself, you know, that she really doesn't have a problem because she's only having two glasses of wine a night, which is in (laughs) effect a bottle. So, you know, you really see the pattern in people who are, are, you know, it's just something they've got to do. It's the same with workout addiction in men, you mm-hmm. know, these guys that have to be buff and they go to the gym every morning and they're very, very self-conscious about their guns and their chest and their pecs and their, their you know, abs. I mean, it's just like, it's an obsession and it is based on the desire to feel better about oneself. Mm. And so the more that it's kind of, the whole addiction to working out is the same as the addiction that a woman might have to being anorexic. Wow, She has a false sense of self, and she believes that if she's thinner and thinner and thinner, that she will be more acceptable and more relatable and more okay.
0: Okay. And I also find one thing really interesting, and I don't know if anyone listening has heard this too, but I've heard that you, your age kind of freezes at the age you start using if you're more into drugs. I don't know how that applies to alcohol or anything else. But what I found really interesting when thinking about this was, A, my my big sister before she passed away, she was like one of my favorite people, but she, uh, it was, she was confusing, you know, it's like she was on drugs, but she was like scintillating and funny and creative and interesting and a, a deep feeler, which is why she was, you know, not wanting to feel her mom's death at a young age because we had a different mom. Um, But what I noticed was that whenever I'd hang out with her as a kid, she would talk about high school and I'm like, why is she talking? And I remember thinking in my little kid head, why is she talking so much about high school? Like she's 40 now. And um, and in a way, it's almost like when I started dating this guy that and again, no judgment on those of you who choose to smoke weed. I probably smoke a joint every now and again socially. I, I don't have any thought on it. I'm not really attached to it. it kind of makes me go to sleep but um i noticed that what happened with this guy i was dating was that instead of him coming home and sitting with his day the hard conversations with customers he owns a business this or that his family he wouldn't sit with it he would smoke weed and so what i was realizing was like wow this guy has been in this pattern every day almost yeah, some days he misses it because he has a social event and he can't get home to smoke, but he's been doing this for 10 years. So every day for 10 years, instead of sitting down and processing your day, unwinding a bit, talking to someone about it, he's taking in that smoke and numbing it out. And it's right. like you just don't process anything right. at a certain point. So. Can you, can you elaborate at all on that? Is, is that something, am I accurate to look at it that way?
1: I think you're entirely accurate. I think that um, self-medicating is all about numbing. And I think that people all over the world do it in order to avoid all kinds of things. And it touches on something else that I really want to bring up, which is trauma
2: mm-hmm.
1: because a lot of people who have some sort of pattern of self-medicating are really people that have had either trauma in their life and or they've experienced something that has really beaten their self-esteem and their sense of self down, Mm -hmm. which, you know, could be trauma as well. You know, being yelled at repeatedly, being shamed as a child, being, you know, hit um, has a a tremendous amount of impact on people over Mm -hmm. time. And it, it, it makes people, you know, kind of divide into categories of being people who, kind of separate from the crowd and they're they they might think of themselves more as an introvert, but really what they are is stepping away from social activities that make them uncomfortable. They're stepping away from personal relationships and friendships that might confront them on their behavior. They're stepping away from anyone who won't join them in this behavior. So even as they look for a girlfriend or a boyfriend, they're going to look for somebody who's either going to join or not going to or is going to go along. Right. Going to be codependent with them and go along with this behavior. So ultimately they're looking for the woman who's not going to confront them, who's not going to get in their face. And if they do, they're also going to snap back into a much more childlike um, perspective of like, oh, she's a bitch.
0: Well, do you know, it's funny. I actually ended things with two men and it's really been exclusive to New York City, LA. I have different issues, but I can't really stereotype like LA. It's like they don't show up because there's traffic or They're in the industry, and I don't even know. But in New York, what I'm finding is a lot more addiction experience. And um, I found that actually both of the men that I ended things with, both beautiful souls, they uh, said uh, like something along the lines of, oh, I always knew you were really smart and that you wouldn't put up with this, and it was only a matter of time. So they had enough awareness that like what they were doing wasn't even really acceptable to them. Right. And, um, so it was really interesting. And again, everybody, I want to emphasize the no judgment because you are where you are. So I know there's also a lot of psychological things that happen in addiction. The closest thing that I have had that I've overcome around addiction is probably, you know, outside of the things that I would judge as like less, you know, problematic, like coffee. Um, is spending like i grew up with a dad who i mean it was like either raining money and fun things or we were in debt and selling our cars you know um and he didn't learn how to manage money i didn't learn how to manage money and i've i've really had to work on this as an adult because no matter how much money i would have made i would never feel successful financially because i would spend and it and it wasn't that I got into extreme debt in the ways that maybe I saw him do. I did do that in my 20s with my business. But as an adult now, um, becoming more financially responsible, I noticed some like addictive things in me in the past when I was working through this, when I was shopping, I would feel like an anxiety take over me. And then it was like, I didn't want to buy it, but I had to buy it. And then the shame. So can you talk about that little cycle that happens internally for people with addiction?
1: I'm really glad you brought up shopping addiction because shopping addiction is something that it crosses both sides, men and women, but women will get into places with it where they will become secretive, their partner. And I have a friend who will go out and buy shoes like a maniac and and beautiful dresses and then she'll bring them home she'll hide them in her closet she'll she keeps her own separate credit cards so that he won't be able to track what she's doing and then she will you know just slowly bring them out because mm-hmm. if she were to just show them to him all at once he'd have a fit and you know she will just go in this place where she just can't stop herself but she you know, it feels shame around it and knows that there would be repercussions. So, um, I think it's a really tough pattern. And Mm -hmm. I think that it's one where, um, it's so born out of low Mm self-esteem and the same with those men who said, I knew you were really smart and ultimately I knew you wouldn't put up with this. That's a statement of low Mm self-esteem. That's like, I, I knew that if you hung with me, I would be in effect marrying up, um, Mm -hmm because they knew that you were incredibly smart and capable. Mm. And yet they look at themselves as um, somebody who's got this pattern and I'm not going to get out of the pattern because I'm comfortable in the pattern, but I knew you wouldn't put up with the pattern. And the same is true for shopping. It's an obsession. It's something that uh, women with low self-esteem do because they will look at it and say, um, Oh God, you know, this dress is like the, the be all end all, I look so great. You know, I'm not wearing those extra 20 pounds on my hips. I look so much better. It's, you know, with a shaper, it'll be perfect. You know, (laughs) they're constantly measuring themselves and their self-esteem by how they look. Those are the same people who will spend hundreds of dollars on skincare and makeup and all kinds of additional, really, you know, above and beyond what they need because they're so worried about whether or not their skin is perfect or whether or not they've got the right makeup that looks smooth or what, you know, it's like, whoa, heaven forbid they hit 60 and above, you know, when your hair goes silver and starts to thin out and you're kind of like, you're left going, oh yes, I guess this is a new phase of
0: life. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's when, you know, if you married the right person or not, (laughs) you (laughs) feel really loved for where you're at. Well, so, okay. There's, there's also, I mean, there's some, You make some good points because there's some social things like workaholism is kind of hidden in hustle culture, Um, shopping and spending. It's kind of genderized. I don't even know if that's a word. I made that up. Genderized as like, oh, women just shop a lot. But it's like, no, if if your credit card is declining and you can't afford your rent. mm, So I guess one question I have is what is the difference, if any, between shopping addiction and spending addiction, because I found that some people just want to spend it. Like they can't hold money. They, and it's not about like clothes or looking better. It's like, they just need to get the money out of their account. What is that about? Hey U-Turners, this episode is sponsored in part by our friends over at Athletic Greens. And what I love the most about them is that their products are not only carbon neutral, but they taste amazing. I started taking Athletic Greens because I really wanted to get all the nutrients and vitamins possible in one swoop And I just couldn't bring myself to drink all those green vegetable smoothies that taste like the grass. So I wanted something that actually tastes good and was perfect for me. And I've been on Athletic Greens for a few weeks now and I am just loving it. It doesn't taste like it's super healthy. You know, it has kind of a mild tropical taste that I actually look forward to every morning. And with one scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals whole food source superfoods probiotics and adaptogens to help you start your day right so this really special blend of ingredients is so supportive for your gut health your nervous system your immune system your energy recovery focus anti-aging all the things right now it is so time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition especially as we're in flu and cold season. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. I even throw mine in my smoothie. So to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash U-Turn. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash Y-O-U-T-U-R-N to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And they're giving one year of vitamin D that is so insane with your first order. I'm so excited for you to check it out. Now let's get back to this week's episode
1: you know i i find that one the most interesting because i i the, the previous partner that i was talking about was somebody who would run up credit cards and really just couldn't just was a like loved to spend it was the act of buying things that i think gave him a sense of self esteem and power and i think that it is it's almost status it's like you know My friends who are multimillionaires can buy whatever they want, so I'm going to buy this because even though it's beyond my budget and it's a piece of art that costs, you know, $10,000, I'm going to pay for it over time and it's going to be fine, you know, and they they just kind of, again, it's denial. They get a denial about what it really means. They don't look at the overall of what their finances really are. They don't look at the fact that they make $120,000 a year and a $10,000 piece of art really isn't in the budget.
0: Right, right. And it's interesting you say that because it sounds like when you go back to trauma, like a freedom thing. I know for me, one thing that I kind of uncovered with spending was that um, my upbringing, you know, it's such a fun dad like obviously that's the upside of it is like he's a yes man. So it's like let's go to Hawaii and stay at the best place. Yes. But then we can't afford it and then there's a nightmare to follow. All of that said, I totally get the upside of that personality and um I feel like for me money was kind of weaponized in our family to keep us mm-hmm. stable or to keep us unstable. It was used against us and I think I became used to feeling unstable um, as it relates to money and just in general, the anxiety that he would have when he didn't have enough money. So I think for me, I almost grew up weaponizing money against myself too. Like I'm going to overspend so I can live in this instability that I only know. Because when I had money in my bank account, it felt weird. You know, like when my business started doing really well, I remember seeing you know, before I lost all of my money, I remember seeing three hundred thousand dollars in my bank account from my business. And I'd never had that kind of money. and i and and then soon after my business went under. So I'm just curious, like, um, if you have any thoughts on like your upbringing and the energy that you grow up in and how do we duplicate that? Why are we duplicating that and this role of trauma in all of it?
1: You know, I love that you bring the upbringing into the conversation, and I love your insight about weaponizing it and weaponizing it against yourself as well. All of the patterns of addiction are all about self-sabotage, every last one. Mm. You know, the wonderful soul who couldn't get to bed without three joints a night, you know, he is going to wake up somewhere in his 60s, an old guy whose brain has been burned out by pot. And, you know, the long-term use of pot is not great for the brain, especially Mm -hmm. when it's smoked. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, the possibility that he's going to have trouble remembering things in his 60s is real. Mm -hmm. Um, But more than that, he'll have grown up with shallow relationships because the woman who will really just go along to get along with Mm -hmm. him will not be a satisfying partner to him. And he will feel unfulfilled. And yet he'll stay in that state of denial and keep smoking. So I just want to mention the weaponizing, because I actually, that same partner who would run up credit cards, would weaponize money in our family as well. Mm. We were a family Mm. at that time. Um, And, you know, so the way that it got weaponized in my family was in this, in our unit, family unit, was that he was really fine with spending money on anything related to our business. Mm. And he would really spend a lot on computers and all kinds of equipment And things of that sort. But when it came to furniture for the house, Mm -hmm. we'd been together for 16 years and didn't have a a really nice couch, Mm -hmm. you know. And I was always wanting to go and you know buy things that were just sensible, long-standing, nice pieces of furniture for the house. And he would just put a complete mix on it, like so. He would control the money as well. He was Mm -hmm. spending like water. I paid down the credit cards not once but three times. or I ended the relationship.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I'm also such a helper. I actually, I don't know what that's about, but I paid the bills of some men that I've been in serious long relationships with. Um, Obviously I didn't talk to them about getting paid back. And so that's just money gone and all part of the spending that I had to use against myself until I learned. And unfortunately, a lot of people, it's what it's the pain that they experience, that the rock bottom that's so important and so sacred for them to learn. Um, I want to talk about porn addiction because I was reading that like 40, I think it's like one out of 10 U.S adults admit to having some sort of an addiction to internet porn. Um, I know that um, tw- one in five men and around one in ten women admit to accessing porn while they're at work. Um, and seven out of 10 women keep their porn activity a secret. Like they don't tell anyone, they look at it. Um, and then when you look at how it impacts relationships, um, the, the vast majority s- studied Cosmo magazine did this with sex ther- therapists. 86% said that porn hurt their relationship. 90% said they had more problems in their relationship because of porn um And also that the use of porn amongst men tends to lower the self-esteem amongst their wives. They feel like they can't keep up. They can't please them. Um, And about 56% of divorce proceedings cite an obsessive interest in porn. Yes. So I want to ask you, what is this about? I actually know someone who went through this with their husband. I'm pretty sure their husband is not addicted anymore, Um, has done the work to not be. Um yeah, I would just love any sort of take from you on this. I know you've worked with a lot of married couples and I know that this is a really big one.
1: Yeah, it really is. In fact, um we do workshops around the country, and one of the things that always comes up at workshops is is addictions and porn
2: um
1: specifically because it's so prolific. And um I find both sexes are very secretive about it. They don't want people to know because it then it can be there secret thing that they've got and they, they, they can always have. Mm -hmm. Um, I find it's all about low self-esteem. I think it gets in the middle of relationships. Um, It's brutal on teens and 20 somethings. And I'll tell you why it's really proliferating in college campuses. And what happens to young women is that men invite them to watch porn with them. Mm -hmm. They get turned on by it. And of Mm -hmm. course, you know, they have a wonderful role in the hay but the point being that women then equate that they have to dress a certain way, look a certain way and act a certain way in order to be sexually attractive.
2: Mm. And
1: as one young woman that I've had as a client said to me, well, basically, I was learning how to be a whore at 21 years old.
2: Mm. I was
1: and she she saw it that way. She was like, you know, I mean, these women that are in porn, these are not they, they probably don't make love that way when they're on their own in their right. lives. They're right. doing it for the camera because this is what the camera demands, which is being run by a man, you know, edited by a man and created by a man in order to be what they believe men want mm-hmm. from, from a sexual experience or that they want to get turned on while watching. And you know, so it's it has incredible. that dual combination of, of the physical pleasure, you know, peace, um, which is another form of numbing yourself.
0: Right. Yeah. It's, it's, you you know, you're getting me thinking I've met two women, one in my community who has a really large following on OnlyFans. She makes 200 K a month on sex videos and she has a whole team behind her. And, um, when I talked to her, she says she just really loves sex and her husband actually runs the business with her. She's married now. Um, wow. So that's one. I think that's one case of real
1: denial. You know, he's realized that her being on these videos is a cash cow. So he's willing to run it with her. But, you know, I'm sorry. That's a that's a denial on a large level. Well, what, what
0: breaks my heart, too, is that a lot of Internet, like if you've ever hit a porn website, a human trafficking victim told me that the pop ups that are with a woman's picture typically saying, do you want to chat with me? most often, the majority of those women are being trafficked. Right. So when we wonder where did the women human trafficking go, right, there are these pop ups off of these porn sites. So it's part of the challenge. Right. Um, but I met another woman who was really big in porn at a party. And when I got down to it with her, she said the reason she got into porn was because she wanted community. She didn't have any friends when she moved to California. And Um, She started trying out apps and the sexual apps ended up being a place where she could connect with people in some way. Um, She actually met a guy who was into on one of these apps that was into like female dominated relationships, meaning like he would come over and clean her house like they, they wouldn't even do anything sexual. So there's a lot of very interesting things, but she ended up becoming friends with these people and creating community. And you know, it, one thing I've learned about community is like everybody wants it and pursues it in a different way um, for a different reason. We all need to be connected as humans. But um, what what would be a starting point for someone who wants to take a step back, whether it's shopping addiction, porn addiction, like what are some of the steps that they need to move into to make positive healing progress, not just with themselves, but in their relationships?
1: I think that... Um... Twelve-step programs actually are a start, and you know, Overeaters Anonymous is a has been a very successful organization for people to be able to talk about the ways and the triggers and the things that set them off, the ways that they would um, want to go and spend or do things that that put them in that addiction. Mm-hmm. And I think that for women, I would love to see support groups. I would actually love if. Well, I won't say it on the air. I was going to say you and I should run a, a, an addictions or a shopping support group online. I would online. love that. I would because love that. honest to goodness, what women need most of all is compassion from other women. And they need opportunities to talk about what's triggering them and then to be able to get to the material that's underneath. Yeah. Because every one of us, I don't care who you are, how old you are, or what stage of development you are in as an adult woman, you have issues with self esteem. You have issues with the way the culture receives you. You yeah. have issues with the way um, clients or or people will deal with you. Okay. Um, women really still get put in the back seat among therapists. You're a therapist. I'm a therapist. You know, I have friends who are men therapists who have been around for as many years as I have, and they can, you know, like just raise their hand and, you know, a parade of clients come their way. Um, And women will be judged constantly for who they are and how they dress and how they look and how, you know, things that are ridiculous that Mm -hmm. have nothing to do with the content of who we are as women and who we are as people and as souls, as human Mm -hmm. beings. So I would love to see more support groups that really support. It don't have to be 12 step per se, but they have to really have some sort of coaching element that Mm -hmm. gets people looking at having a support group, having other people in the group they can call when they're on the edge, Mm
2: -hmm. having
1: somebody that's going to help them look at their checkbook and be accountable so that they know that there's no closet spending going on. And that they can start to feel good that it's, hey, you know, I went this month and I didn't spend the 2000 a month that I typically spend. And now I've got 2800 in the bank that yeah. I didn't have last month. And next month, I'm going to be over six grand Yeah. And they exactly. can start to feel that sense of esteem around having. Mm-hmm. And then the other piece, you know, first time I was ever in coaching was post-divorce from that individual I was just speaking okay. about where money was weaponized. I was paying down credit cards. I couldn't get furniture. And, you know, this is a person who, you know, really used a lot of different addictions to manage the way that they had been raised, which was with tremendous neglect and with terrible alcoholism. Wow. So I got into a coach, a coach relationship and coaching is different than therapy. Yeah. And one of the things the coach said to me is like, what's been the thing, the area that of your life when you look at a wheel of your whole life and where are you? I said, well, I don't have a good friends network mm-hmm. and um, my house is just like not where I want it to be. I mean, it's just pretty blank. I don't have a lot of art. I don't have a lot of nice furniture. I don't have the, it's not where I want it to be. It doesn't feel like me. Mm-hmm. And she was like, okay, let's start there. so I started having to commit to asking women friends to go have tea or whatever I slowly developed this amazing network of friends and Mm -hmm. because she was coaching me it had to be there every week I had to be inviting people but also we went from room to room to room and I painted I bought furniture I just did things that made that room feel like amazing like a castle and it was a really interesting journey because she helped me to sort of see how neglected I had actually been mm. and how much I had put up with that, how much I had allowed someone else to control what I could do in the world because I was going along. I was, I was buying right into codependence, which if we're speaking about addictions, there's always codependence. There's always denial. There's always codependence. Whoever is living with the addict is, is codependent to them.
0: It's interesting too, because I think sometimes, um, addictions are masked as the way that we spend time with ourselves, our alone time. And like, I remember when I shopped a lot more, it was kind of like, oh, I have an open day and it's Saturday and the sun is out. Like, I'm going to go shopping. That sounds so fun. And so it was kind of like, yeah, I love fashion and I love freedom and I love feeling free. Like I can have whatever I want, but, um, it was the way that I learned to be with myself. And I don't feel like it was fully an addiction because I was able to pull it in when I noticed it. But I think a lot of people listening right now beyond shopping or porn or weed or whatever, maybe they, they are watching their partner go through this and they're feeling really powerless. Like they don't want to be codependent, but they love their partner and they want to show up for them. What are some ways that they can communicate, encourage, notice that this is happening with their partner and and be helpful towards the solution? Yeah.
1: Um, one of my clients recently did an intervention with their husband and it was probably six months ago. So it was a while back, but um, I, I consider that recent. This is a person who would have a glass of red wine every night.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And she felt that it was his way of separating. He would go to his office. He would smoke a cigar. He would have a glass of wine. He um, would watch something on, on his computer. He And it was sort of like, well, you know, I'm an introvert. I just need some alone time. But it was really a way of withdrawing and a way of self-medicating. Um, for her, it just really felt like they were becoming more and more isolated. They didn't go anywhere. And by the time he came up for air from his what usually was two glasses of wine in his cigar, um, you know, he, he would be tired. He wouldn't want to be intimate because he was too drunk. He would not want to hang out and visit with her because he was over it. He'd, he'd already sort of gotten himself in a place, state where he just wanted to relax and go to bed. And so he might watch, um, a, a, you know, a television show or something on Netflix with her mm. for an hour But again, a stationary, we're in our two chairs and we're not really going to talk Mm -hmm. kind of moment. And she just started to feel increasingly lonely. Mm. So she basically pushed on him that a glass of wine a day is an addiction. When it's every day, it's an addiction. Mm. And she basically said, well, if it's not an addiction, he pushed back. If it's not an addiction, then quit for 60 days and let's see what happens. He was like, okay. You know, he, he took it on. So he just thought at the end of 60 days, he would go back to his pattern. At the end of 60 days, he was so mentally clear. He had gotten so much done in the evening. His business almost doubled financially because he was taking care of business in a different kind of way. Um, He was doing better in the morning. He was sleeping better. He had stopped snoring. I mean, there was like huge benefits and their sex life, which was virtually dead, came to life and they started making love two to three times a week. And she started making that the interesting item. She started mm-hmm. like reigniting their relationship in bed. And, you know, I mean, in her words, she was like, well, you know, I did a little negligee shopping, but, you know, aside from that, we were just plain having fun. Yeah. And so he felt a different sense of esteem. It mm-hmm. was like he, he actually thanked her when it was over and said, I had no idea. I really didn't see mm-hmm. it. I was just so tired and so overwhelmed by work and by my business that I was just medicating to get away from it all. Wow. Yeah, it was huge. And now he's having a cocktail once a month when they go out with friends. Mm -hmm. And recently they went out with friends and he didn't have a cocktail. Mm. She said, that's huge.
0: Wow. That's wonderful. And I think a lot of people are kind of in that middle zone where they have a habit and they, it could be called an addiction Um, you know, they'll they'll say they can stop anytime. And if they do, that's a good way of, I guess, knowing that you're not as addicted as you thought, or you have some power over it versus being addicted. Um, What is the role of people who have trauma just a little more deeply in them developing addictions? Because I had a pretty um, good upbringing. Obviously, my dad lost a lot of money. He was pretty panicked. Great man, though. I mean, to this day, he's like my favorite person. He's so funny. But um, he's gotten better, thank God, with this, but um the, that was my biggest energy in my life was him panicking about money all the time and me being worried we weren't gonna have a roof over our head, which is traumatic. Right. Um right.
1: and that's you being parentified. That's a father who yes. he may be charming, but he's Peter Pan. Yes, yes. And and a and Peter I Pan, Peter Pan or or a Puer, as we call them, is is never really quite grows up. They remain charming and fun and amazing. Um, but kids feel really insecure underneath them.
0: Oh, wow. That's such a good point. And you know, it's interesting because I kept dating men that I needed to rescue in some way. They would be really strong in their career, but kind of emotionally a mess or, and I I try to say that with love, you know, they would just be all over. They haven't processed any of their pain in their life. Um, And so it, it wasn't until recent that I really shifted and started being attracted to people that didn't need me to rescue or help them in that way. And it's almost like, oh wow, I guess I grew up with myself thinking like love loving a man is is rescuing them, is being their parent, is holding space for them. And even tonight, I'm going on a date with a guy who like planned the whole night. I have no idea what's in store. It's like I'm being shown up for now because I decided to change. So Um, can you tell me a little bit more about this phenomenon of how, based on how parents are parenting kids kind of become the parent and how does that show up in their later life?
1: Well, that's actually, um, there's been books written on it that are amazing. The drama of the gifted child is one, um, if you want to read anything about really the power of codependence, read Pia Melody, Uh um, These are these are real experts in in the field that understand that when a child has been parentified, they lost their childhood. You know, in a sense, you live under the fear and the trauma and the need to take care of this parent, this adult parent who is not holding it together. And you are in fear of being without a roof over your head. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, a responsible parent doesn't spend money they don't have. Um, And I want to say that about alcohol, too, because I know many a mother who's giving a bath to two little toddlers, and she's got a big, giant glass of wine on the side of the tub. And if you don't think those kids see that, know that, and live that, and then grow up to be people who normalize getting really plastered when they go off to college. And these are the same young women who end up getting date raped or having horrible things happen to them because they didn't understand that alcohol can help you to be out of control in a way that will damage and hurt you. So those children are parentified in their own way and that they're fed denial on a spoon. And they're, they're basically taught that you know this is normal. It isn't normal. In, in households across the United States, people drink coffee during the day and they have a glass of soda with their supper or a glass of water. They don't get drunk. Um, and you know, those, I mean, I grew up in a family with my father had a beer twice a summer you know i mean there was no alcohol there was none of that stuff going on and so you know all of these different addictions really have an impact on children being parentified and or children being given denial in such a way that that they take it in
0: and they understand mm-hmm. it as normal
1: mm-hmm. it is not
0: and, normal do you know margaret paul anna yeah. yes you, you know her personally no Okay, she's been on the show and I have the same feeling towards her that I have towards you. Just both of you are such amazing, like insightful women. Um I almost wish both of you were like family members or something because I didn't <laughs> have family that kind of did personal development. There's plenty um, of room for that.
1: Let me just tell right. you, say this. I want to say this to the whole audience. You know, as a woman, you should seek out women that can be both sisters and mothers mm-hmm. in your life or aunts. I mean, I have a dear, dear friend who's 84. And after my mother died, she sort of slipped right in. I mean, we talk on the phone at least twice a week. She's charming. She's bright as a whip. She is such a mom to me. And it's like, it's so nourishing to have somebody in your life that's got your back and that understands your stage of development and is really there supporting you in every way. So yes, I am here.
0: Yeah. And I feel that. And I also like want to point out that your work kind of ties to hers in the sense where we're talking right now about becoming the parent when you're a kid and how traumatic that can be because you don't have a childhood. You have to take on a lot of stress and responsibility that, by the way, your brain is probably not developed enough to take on. Right. And then you have trauma from that. And um, Margaret Paul, her work is around inner bonding. It's about inner child work. It's about um, reparenting yourself to give yourself those moments that you really needed, that you carry with you in your body, in your heart, in your soul, in your pain. Um, and it's, it's interesting. I have a good friend who kept dating these men that were so uh, toxic for her. And I was like, show me a picture of you when you were five. And she showed me a little picture of her. And I was like, look at you. And I'm like, what would you do if, if this little girl watched how this guy was treating you? And she was like, oh no, like I, she could never see this. And I'm like, she's you, like, what are you doing? So I, I just can't recommend enough that tie between there's addiction that we covered, there's trauma, there's becoming a parent, and then there's inner child work that I think is so powerful. Before we go, um, do you have anything final to share with everyone? And then I wanna ask you what books again you'd recommend and you could just spew them off. We'll put them in the show notes for everybody to read. Absolutely. Well, first, I want to say that, you know, my husband and I
1: co-authored The Go-Giver Marriage, but I have to tell you that about 80% of my practice is not about marriage or about, um, you know, improving one's relationship. I would say 80% of the people that I see in my practice are women who want to Not only take their life to the next level, but they want to get in charge of themselves in terms of their emotions, their trauma, their history, their patterns with men or women and um, and get, you know, take control of their life in a different way. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of it does have to do with that inner bonding work. So I think we have a lot in common there. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, the books that I recommend relative to addiction, there's so many good ones out there. But I love Pia Melody in that I think that she really talks about addiction in relation to the codependence and all of the patterns that come from childhood. And I think a lot of addiction is born out of past experiences that colored who you were. I mean, you have described to a T what somebody who will shop is about. You know, it's like you had that insecurity financially. You had a parent who wasn't being responsible. You got it firsthand. It was you know, what you were raised on. Yeah. And so you got into adult life and it became a pattern of like, oh, it's a sunny day. I think I'll shop. Yeah. Exactly. Feeling good today. I'll go shop. And shopping by itself is a wonderful experience. It's really fun to buy things. But when you're doing it as a way of
0: bolstering yourself, it's a really different pattern. hmm. Well, I mean, this has been such a wonderful conversation and all of the work you're doing with GoGiver and GoGiver Marriage and your clients is so needed, especially right now. I actually saw my website analytics and the most searched term that we saw on our keywords this month was overwhelmed, want to quit. And so I just think people are exhausted and they're not just tired of their jobs. They're tired of themselves and they they're sick and tired of being sick and tired, or in Buddhism, they call it samsara. Yes. It's they're tired of their samsara. So um, thank you so much for being here. I'm sure it won't be the last time I'll have you back. Mm-hmm. And also your husband, who is just the biggest gem. Um, yeah, anything left to share with anyone, where can they find you?
1: Uh, you can find me on uh gogivermarriage.com. Um, in terms of, of uh, you know, any individual work, you can you can send me emails through that website. Um, I am building a website that will just be in my name, um, but that's coming in about a month. So we're we're just on that same website, com. And anyone wants to email me or ask questions, go for it. You know, I interact with people by email all the time.
0: Mm, thank you again for coming on. Thanks so much, Ashley.